morning, Bethel. All right, it's good to see all of you this morning. We are starting a new series in the book of Psalms, and this is, Psalms has so much good things that we can live our life by, and what we're going to look at today is why Psalms is so important. The Psalms is about the glory of God, and we're going to kind of walk through finding your purpose through the book of Psalms today. Um, and then, which will kind of lay the groundwork for why we look at all of these majestic verses that David and Aesop and all of the other writers of Psalm pen for us through the book of Psalms over the next coming weeks. Few things in life are as important as finding your purpose. When you understand something's purpose, you can put up with all kinds of inconvenience and pain because of it. Being a purpose-driven organization is something that is very um, trendy in corporate world today. They want you to understand the purpose. Why do you do? And they try to connect your day-to-day job to the purpose of the organization. And our lives have a purpose that we live by each and every moment of every day. Let me give you an example. Let's say your boss asks you to come in on a Saturday morning. You have a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday job, and they ask you to come in on Saturday morning. You'd be like, what? I don't want to come in on Saturday morning. And the the job that he has for you is even worse. They have a stack of 10,000 envelopes, and they want you to sort through the contents of those 10,000 envelopes. And you think, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this? You'd be resentful. You'd say, this is the worst weekend ever. I'm having to open envelopes all weekend. But what if your boss told you that in one of those envelopes is a $100,000 bonus check? And whether you get that check or not depends on whether you get through all those envelopes on the weekend. You just now have a purpose. Your perception has already changed that same tedious job now looks completely different to you. Why? Because you have a purpose as to why you're doing that job. Let me illustrate it this way. Try being a doctor and telling a woman that she has a condition that is going to make her waistline grow by 10 inches and 30 pounds over the next few months, and she may punch you in the face. But tell her, and my wife has heard this five times, that she is pregnant and she will rejoice at that news. The conditions are the same, but the difference is the perception of the purpose. That is the difference. Knowing God has a purpose for you would transform how you see everything in life, what you do with your blessings, how you interpret your pain. So how can you understand God's purpose for your life? We're going to read it from Psalms chapter 57 this morning. And I hope you see a little note here at the beginning of this psalm. It's kind of interesting. He says, for the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time he fled from Saul and went into the cave to be sung to the tune of do not destroy (laughs) it's it's very unique that they have this this is like a song that i'm sure they sung in the temple you know decades 
after this event took place. This is an important context because David wrote this song while he was hiding in a cave from King Saul who was trying to kill him because David had been anointed the next king over Israel. And Saul, the current king of Israel, did not like that. So he chased David out of the country and he has several thousand men scouring the countryside looking for David. In short, everything had gone wrong at this point for David in his life. And maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, man, my life is not how I envisioned it turning out. This is not what I thought my life would be when I was 16 years old. Maybe you'll find yourself relating to David, hiding in a cave, fearing for his life, hoping just to see tomorrow. Here's what David writes in Psalms chapter 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords, be exalted, O God above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul has bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 57 is really a remarkable psalm when you think of the situation that David presently finds himself in. Because in spite of all of the things that are going wrong in David's life, in spite of the fact that he is suffering innocently, not one time in this psalm does David ask God to change his situation. The only thing he asks throughout the psalm is, God, glorify your name in this situation. That's the only thing he asks for in the psalm. He never says, Lord, would you vindicate my name? Saul smearing my name. Would you vindicate my name? No, he doesn't ask that. He doesn't say, God, I don't deserve this. Fix it. At least, God, give me some nicer accommodations. This cave is dark and it's damp. And I don't want to be here anymore. Or he doesn't even say, you know, God, give Saul some hemorrhoids so he hurts as he rides his horse and he has to go home. He doesn't even ask for that. David may want all of these things, but he perceives something bigger going on in his situation. 
So rather than asking for anything, he prays twice. Be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. God, use this situation to let other people see how majestic you are. Man, that's a, that's a tough prayer to pray. You know, I'm going to give you three things from this psalm that we can learn about the purpose for our lives. And number one, this might be a little shocking to some of you. God has a purpose for you, but it's not about you. It's not about you. You can see this in the refrain that David goes back and back over again to. He says, God, may you be exalted above the heavens and let your glory be over all of the earth. Superseding David's desire to be rescued is his prayer for God to be glorified. The ultimate purpose for your life is not about you. You and I exist for God's glory. And this is a hard thing for people to get sometimes, that the ultimate center of all that happens on earth is God's glory. Why did God create the heavens and earth? It says in Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God wove creation as a tapestry for his glory. Paul says in Ephesians 1.6 that God chose to save us in a way that he did to put on display his glorious grace. David says that the, same, that the reason God continues to work in his life is for the glory of his name. So we see this theme all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what is the ultimate purpose God has for us now? Bringing him glory. That's why he created us. It's why he saved us. Paul would tell us that in everything we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, we should do all to the glory of God. You think, you know, this is so self, self-centered. This is like a self-centered God. This seems like a very unloving God that he's just consumed with himself. Let me give you an analogy of how this works. In order for life on earth to work, the earth has to rotate around what? The sun. The sun it has to rotate around the sun. If the sun was a person and it loved the earth, it would insist that it remain the center of the earth's orbit. Because for the earth to ever lose the sun, it would mean certain death for us. The sun is what gives life on the earth. That's how we are with God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. If God wants us to have these things, he'll insist that we build our lives around him as the center. The essence of the Father's love, and God wants us to share in that so that he insists we put him at the center. The center of everything we do. The reason this is so hard for us to get is that we are born into a life that thinks this backwards mentality, thinking we are the center of everything. So let me kind of walk you through the history of mankind to see how we went wrong 
with this purpose. And I'll explain that the reason God created the world was to demonstrate his glory. With the tip of his finger, he flung the galaxies into place. Just think about that. He made the stars and the clouds, the mountaintops, the seas, and the atom, and every cell. And every time he creates something, the angels in heaven, I'm sure, are standing there saying, wow, wow, that is awesome. God, what can you do? Do something else, God. Amaze us again. Then after everything else has been created, God created man to share in his glory. Created them in the image of God. And this creation was special because God designed this part of the creation in his own image. And then God did the unthinkable with Adam and Eve. And he allowed them to partake in this creation. God put them in the garden and said, name the animals. He put them in this garden, this beautiful place, so they could be part of it. And he gave them a brush and said, I'm going to let you be a part of this creation that I have created. And we painted as a part of this creation, not God, but ourselves. Adam and Eve says, we're going to be the center of this creation. We're going to be the boss. We know better than God. And that was called sin. And every child born into the world since then arrives with the same virus that Adam and Eve brought into the world. And that virus is sin. And the ultimate result of our sin is death. You know, two words that I never had to teach my kids were no and mine. Never had to teach them that. They, they learned that automatically. They never had to stay after school and be tutored on selfishness. That is something that came naturally to my kids from their mother's side of the family. That just, it happened. Our default setting in life for all of us is self-centeredness. When you look at a picture, you determine how nice that picture looks based on what? First, based on how you look in the picture. You look at yourself, am I smiling? Were my eyes open? You know, was I slim in that picture? You, know, you automatically look at yourself first. You know, even in our religion, we are selfish. Let me summarize. We summarize our prayers this way. Gimme, 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 gimme. It's the way a lot of our prayer lives go. God, help me get this. Stop him. Smite her. Make everyone behave the way I want to so I can be happy. Hey, God, are you listening? I am the sinner. Take care of me. And then when he doesn't, you get angry at him. Hey, God, what's the problem? Don't you get? I want happiness. I want all of my glory. We, that, that is the, we can see what we think about God by the way that we pray. We live as if God exists to glorify us at the center of the universe. So we put bumper stickers on our car that say things like, God is my co-pilot. And worship God as the best means to my best life now. And if God doesn't behave, we're like the nerve of God. He's not doing what I want him to do. He's not bringing me 
happiness that I think I deserve. And we walk around confused saying, God, how am I supposed to defend to everyone that you're a good God? I don't understand what you are up to. And God says, what am I up to? My glory. You say, God, what about, what about my glory? To which God says, I'm not concerned about yours. You say, well, I still feel like you're not a loving God to, to only seek your own glory. Well, let's talk about how God pursued his glory after we rejected him. What do you do when your prized creation hijacks the rest of your creation and makes it about them? You know, governments in Jesus' day had a very simple answer. The Roman response to a rejection of a people. When the Jews dared to rebel against the Romans, the Romans came down and they would string up hundreds and thousands of men, women, and children on crosses. They would tear down the walls of their city. They would build a triumphal arch to some emperor like Titus and celebrate their victory. What did Jesus do when we rebelled against him in our sin? Crush us? No. Set up an arch of triumph in heaven and have angels sing songs about how quickly he destroyed us? No. Let's read what Paul says in Philippians 2.6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did God's son react when we usurped his glory? He did what you and I would never do. He came to earth and took the form of a servant, and he died in our place. When he arrived on earth, he never played the God card, which is what you and I would have done. And then, instead of crushing the traitors, he offered himself up to be crushed by them in our place. Most of us have had a hard time thinking through God's glory. We have a hard time even grasping what God did for us on a cross as we celebrated last week. Most of us would never even give our life up for a friend. But Jesus died for his enemies as they spit in his face and as they mocked him. His glory was not selfish glory. It was a giving, sharing glory. It says in verse 9 of Philippians Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can almost hear Paul saying, it's not, is he not worthy to receive glory from you? It's like he's telling the Philippian church, is he not worthy because of what he's done to receive glory from your life? His glory was not a selfish glory that crushed us when we rebelled. It was a glory that sacrificed himself to save us.
Think about that. It was not a selfish glory. It was a sacrificial glory. How can we, who have experienced that, not rise up and give him glory? And David gets that. As David is sitting there in that cave, wondering if he will see another day, he gets that this whole thing is not about me. It's about God. So number two, God has a purpose for you, and it's mostly about what he's doing in you. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. I'm going to say that again because we get that backwards today. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. This life, after all, is just a warm-up for eternity. We'll live here on this earth less than 100 years, but we will be in heaven for eternity. He is more interested in making you holy rather than just happy. Notice how many times in verse 1 David talks about his soul finding refuge in God. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David's refuge was not in the cave where he was hiding. It was not in the army he had gathered about him. Saul's army was ten times the size of David's. His refuge was not in the fact that he could hit a giant with a slingshot. His refuge was not in the fact that he was innocent. No, even still in that, he cries out to God for mercy. His refuge was in one place, in God's steadfast love and grace. And that is what he ran into. And that is how he slept. God's purpose in all of this was to teach David to make his presence his refuge. And that's his purpose for you too. As you sit here this morning, looking for a refuge for a troubled heart, God says, don't find your refuge in the comforts of this life. Find your refuge in my steadfast love and grace towards you. So sometimes God's going to attack our places of refuge to teach us they aren't permanent. Like David, he drives you from your country even though you're innocent. And he puts you in the wilderness so you'll learn to find your home, to find your security, to find your identity in him. He attacks your places of refuge and reveals your inabilities because he wants his mercy to be your primary place of refuge. God has a purpose for you, and it's about what he is doing in you. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. And once you get that, some of what God is doing in your life will begin to make more sense to you. And last of all, God has a purpose for you. And if you are surrendered to it, he will fulfill it. David says in verse 2, God will fulfill his purpose for me. Fulfills in the Hebrew is gemar, which means to bring in, in, to complete. You know, I, I, I like telling my kids, finish what you started. Finish what you started. 
God is a perfectionist. You see, when it comes to his purposes, he will not let anything come in the way of what he is doing. For David, this means God will save him from the wicked plan of others. In verses 3 and 6, you'll see he overrules all of those evil plans for good. He also saves us from our own stupid decisions. That's why David calls out for mercy. Mercy implies that David realizes that he has made some mistakes in his life. You know, I think back to how I got to where I am in life and the path that has been filled with a lot of painful, stupid, sinful decisions. The irony, only when you say, I don't want to be the center of the universe, that's when God reorders all things in the universe to fulfill his purpose for you. Kind of ironic. Make yourself the center of the universe and nothing will work for you. Make him the center of your universe and the entire cosmos is realigned for God to fulfill his purpose in you. It's, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? When you surrender to God's purposes, the power of that promise becomes your refuge. Then like David, you can lie down and sleep even in the midst of a fiery beast. You can rise up with a joyful song even in the midst of a heartache. Out of the dark caves of your discouragement and your depression, you can sing songs of praise like what we just read in Psalms chapter 57. God has a purpose for you. He wants to use you to exalt his name in the earth. And he wants to teach you to trust him. Are you pursuing and discovering that purpose this morning in your situation now it's okay to pray for God to change the situation I, I, I'm not discouraging you from doing that but are you praying God glorify your name through this difficult time in my life help me to know you more don't waste your pain Students, what is the primary objective of you in school when you get up tomorrow morning to go? Is it just good grades? Your social circle, those things are great, but the one objective that must trump all is how can God get glory in my life and spreading it on your campus and discovering what God has called you to in life as a means of spreading his glory. How can God get glory in your life at school? By the way, you treat your teachers. How hard you do your work at school. The way you interact with your friends. You know, athlete, those in here that play sports, what is your objective as an athlete? Is it just to go be the best? God gets glory when we work at our craft to be the best that we can be. Business professional in here, are you leveraging your talents and resources to bring God glory? Or is it to pursue your own kingdom to grow the corporate ladder? Is your prayer about how God can make your business work for you or how he will use it to glorify his name throughout the earth? Mom, there are some moms in here that are stay-at-home moms. As you raise your children, is your primary goal just getting through each day, changing diapers and making sure the kids are fed, or 
is it raising kids that glorify God and who will grow up and follow God anywhere that he sends them to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. We have a purpose as followers of Christ, as creation of the creator. The creation brings the creator glory. There are people right now in places like Italy looking at the creation of Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and all of the great Renaissance artists and sculptors, and they pay big bucks to go tour and look at this creation. Why? Because it is majestic. And they look and they say things like, man, Michelangelo was such a great artist. You look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The creation brings glory to the creator. You and I are God's creation. Our purpose in this life, in all that we do, is to bring glory to our creator. The success of any life is measured solely by whether it's discovered its purpose to glorify God. There is not a man, woman, child here today that cannot bring glory to God. We all have that ability in the way that we live our lives. Let's leave here today with the front of my mind How can I order and construct my life today? How can I interact in the relationships around me so that God will receive glory? Let's pray.